0: This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. It's good to see everybody here this morning. It is good to be here. We look forward to every opportunity we have to come over and see the the faces of people that we know, that we love, And it seems like every time uh, we come over, we meet new people, too. We we see new faces, and we're glad about that. Uh, Thank you for inviting me to come and be your teacher this morning. I want to talk to you this morning about what really happened in the Garden of Eden. We're going to talk about the first three chapters of Genesis. The first three chapters of Genesis, the story of the Garden of Eden, tell us so much. And we can learn so much. From these chapters, we can learn so much about God and who He is. We can learn so much about how He made us to be and how we ought to be in His sight. And we can learn so much about how we ought to encounter and interact with and have relationship with God, our Creator. I think it's important for us to understand what really happened in the Garden of Eden because unfortunately, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of ignorance... Uh, there are a lot of things, a lot of ideas that men have come up with and sort of attached to the story of the Garden of Eden, which really aren't true, really aren't scriptural. They actually can be misleading. And if you get misled or you become confused in the first three chapters of the Bible about who God is or about how He made us or about how we can have relationship with Him, if you get confused from the, the first three chapters of God's book, you're going to run into all kinds of problems as you continue to study your way through the Bible and, and read it. Okay? So we want to go back to the, to the Bible and we just want to stick with what the Scriptures teach. Okay? We don't want to theorize. We don't want to give opinion. We just want to look at what the text says. And we feel like that that's the best way, that's the safest way to really understand what happened there in the Garden of Eden. Now, central to the question of what really happened in the Garden of Eden is this. This is what it's all about, okay? Who are you? Who are you? I'm here to tell you this morning, if you don't know who you are, if you don't know how God made you, if you don't know why He made you, and if you don't know the nature that He gave you, there is a void in your heart, okay? Okay? And I want to tell you something, if there's a void in your heart today because you really don't know who you are, Satan will work tirelessly to fill that void with some sort of deception. He, he does it all the time, okay? He gets people today all kinds of confused and backwards about who we really are, how we were made, about how he wants us to live. And how he wants us to come to him for relationship and salvation. Okay? So we need to know who we are. Hope this lesson helps you, right? To have a better and clearer understanding of who we truly are in the sight of, of God. What we're going to do as we go through this lesson, we're going to look at three things primarily. First thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at man and woman as God created them to be. Okay? The Bible tells us about. How God made man and woman, how He created them to be. The second thing we're going to look at is man and woman as they were tempted there in the garden by Satan. We're going to look at the temptation of man in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And then the last thing we're going to look at, look at is man and woman after they had committed sin. And what kind of changes did that bring to humanity? What kind of changes did that bring to the world? You know, there's a lot of theories, a lot of ideas, a lot of speculations that are drawn about the change that was brought into the world by Adam and Eve's sin. But remember, we're just going to stick with what the Bible says. What God wants us to know about this story is in the text. It's there and we can read it in our own Bibles. And we're just going to stick with that. Okay, We're not going to go off into these theories, into these... uh, different ideas that man have and have have attached to this story. So let's start off this morning uh, in, in the Garden of Eden looking at man as God created him to be. God created man and woman in His own spiritual image. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. This is the sixth day of creation. Mankind was the final thing that God created, for He rested on the seventh day. In Genesis one God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And guess what? In verse 27, that's exactly what He did. He made man, the Bible says, in His own image. In the image of God created He Him. Male and female created He them. Now, this is significant because God created a lot of things in day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. But this was the very first thing He created where He said, I'm going to make this in my own image after my own likeness. He didn't create the, st- the stars and the sun and the moon in His likeness. He didn't create the animals and the plants in His image. Okay? But when it came time to create mankind, He said, I'm going to make this part of my creation in my image after my likeness. What does it mean to be created in the image of or after the likeness of God? It has nothing to do really with our physical being, okay, with our physical bodies or how we're made anatomically, okay? Because God is not a physical fleshly being. He's a spirit. And that's what Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John four twenty four. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God's a spiritual being. So to be made in the image or after the likeness of God, it has to do, it, we have to think about that on a spiritual level. I'm going to do my best that I can, that I know how to explain what it means to be created in the image of God. When you study the Scriptures and you learn about God, you find that God has a heart. Okay? God feels things. There are times when God is happy. There are times when God is sad. There are times when God gets angry. Okay? God feels a wide range of feelings and emotions just like we do. He has a heart. When He made us in His image, He gave us a heart as well. We can feel joy. We can feel sadness. We can feel anger and a whole host of different emotions. The animals don't feel those emotions like we do. The rocks and the trees and the the stars in the sky certainly don't have capacity to to feel the way that we do because we were made in the image of God. He had a heart. He gave us a heart. God also has a mind. He has an all-knowing mind. right? He knows everything. And when God made us in His own image, He gave us a mind. He gave us intellect. He gave us memory. He gave us consciousness. He gave us uh, the ability to reason. Okay? The animals, the plants, the rocks, they don't have ability to reason. They don't have intellect and consciousness. They don't have a mind like we do. And we have it because we were made in the spiritual image of God. God had a heart and a mind, and He gave us a heart. He gave us a mind when He made us. God also has a will, He has an all powerful will. And when God made us, He gave us a will too. He gave us a sense of self determination, He gave us the ability to choose. The ability to choose how we're going to live our life, the ability to choose whether or not we're going to acknowledge Him, whether or not we're going to serve Him. So, you see, this makes us very, very special. We are set apart from all uh, everything else in God's creation because we have a heart, we have a mind, and we have a will. And that all goes back to being created in the image of or after the likeness of our spiritual God. God uh, not only created us in His image, He created us with certain natural fleshly. Desires. Each and every one of us, from the time that we're born, we have desire. God created us with the ability to feel certain desires that we just feel in the flesh. And I want to, I want to show you some of these desires. I, I think it's really important to understand this. In Genesis 3 and 6, this is when Eve is being tempted by the serpent to eat the fruit that God told them not to eat, not to even touch. Okay. In Genesis 3 and 6... Uh, the devil's already laid his trap. Satan's already provided the temptation. And now the woman's got a choice to make. And she's reasoning in her mind on whether she's going to choose to obey God or obey Satan. Okay? Now look at what the Bible tells us. When, and when the woman, that's Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. I'm going to stop right there. You know what happens in the last part of the verse, right? She she takes the fruit, she eats of it, she gives it to her husband, he eats of it. But, but I want to stop right here and look at, some. we see some of the natural fleshly desires that God created us to have. When Eve looked at that fruit, we don't know what kind of fruit it was, but it was good for food. You know, God created all of us to have an appetite. We all get hungry. I usually get hungry two, maybe three times a day. I get hungry, okay? I got to eat. I want to eat something. Uh, that just happens. You know what I'm talking about. You, you have an appetite too. Some of us have bigger appetites than others. But we all have an appetite. That's a desire God put within us to eat food. And, and aren't you glad we have that desire? Because it's for our own good. And I believe every desire God made us to feel is for our own good. Okay? Okay. It's for our own good so that we'll take in minerals and vitamins and calories and energy so we can live and move and so we can survive and be healthy. He made us to get hungry, have an appetite. And Eve looks at the fruit and she says, Well, you know, i got to have food. And it's food, (laughs) right? Let me tell you another desire God created us to have, an aesthetic desire. That's an attraction toward things that are beautiful in God's creation. This is, a, this is a, an amazing thing. But we all understand it, don't we? We all look at different things and, and we see beauty in things, right? Best way I know how to illustrate this is through the Grand Canyon. I've never been to the Grand Canyon. But I know that I think millions, I think millions of people visit the Grand Canyon in Arizona every year. Do you know why people drive across that desert to go to the Grand Canyon? You know what they go to look at? Rocks rocks I've got rocks back on my farm I got lots of rocks You know how many people line up at my driveway to come and see my rocks back at my farm no, Nobody nobody's coming to see my rocks Why Because in the Grand Canyon we see something beautiful We see something beautiful in the way God formed that landscape and, it, and we're attracted to that. We see the order, the beauty of God's creation in things. And He just made us to feel that way. And that's how Eve felt when she looked at the fruit. Not only was it good for food, she said, it's pleasant to the eyes. It, it looks good. It wasn't rotten. It didn't have flies swirling around it. it. It looked good. There was that attraction there to it. It's another desire God created us to have. And this, this desire in and of itself is not wrong. It's not sinful to have this desire, nor is it sinful to have an appetite. But I'm here to tell you we've got to be careful about the ways in which we act upon these desires. That's where we get ourselves in trouble. The third desire. Each and every one of us have an innate desire to gain knowledge and grow in an understanding. Okay? Our children, from the very time that they're born, they have this desire within them. They are constantly taking in information and growing and developing uh, as human beings, right? If we did not have this desire within us, right, we would continue along just as we came into the world, right? We, would continue, we wouldn't learn to walk, we wouldn't learn to talk, we wouldn't learn to, to eat, we wouldn't learn to go to the bathroom, right? We would just continue on as we came into this world. But God created within us a drive, a desire to gain knowledge, gain understanding, grow in wisdom, and develop, okay? And when Eve sees the fruit, she says, it's good for food, it's pleasant to the eyes, and it's, it's a tree to be desired to make one wise. Serpent is telling me that if I eat this fruit, I will know something that I otherwise wouldn't. So I'm gonna, he's, he's telling me I'm going to be wiser, which I want. I want. We want to be wiser. I'm going to be wiser if I eat this fruit. I want to talk about one more desire. And we're going to back up into chapter 1 to catch this desire, just to illustrate it. In Genesis 1.28, after God made Adam and Eve, God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply. God put within us a desire to be fruitful and multiply. We understand what that desire is. Those of us who've grown into adulthood, we have a desire or a drive to seek a maid and to have offspring. Now this desire in and of itself is not sinful. Okay, How we act on that desire, we can act on this desire in a good in a a way that God approves of or we can act on that desire in many, many different ungodly ways. Okay, We all feel these different desires and there are more that we can talk about. God made us to feel these things and to feel these things is not wrong, it's not sinful, it's not bad. Again, we just have to act on those desires in a way God approves of. Think about it this way. Here we've got mankind inside this red circle. This red circle symbolizes God's will. This would be God's will for us. And as long as we act or behave or think within the bounds of this red circle, as long as we fulfill our fleshly desires within this circle, we can be righteous in the sight of God, right? But you know, we can step outside of God's will to satisfy these desires. And when we step outside God's will to satisfy the desires that He gave us, it's no longer for our good In fact. Many of the ways, the sinful ways that we satisfy desire are destructive and we're no longer under God's righteousness. In fact, we're under His condemnation when we go outside His will to satisfy desire. That's really what sin is, right? This is what sin is. This is sort of a textbook definition of sin. 1 John 3, 4 says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sins the transgression of the law. God has a law. He has a will. He has expectations for mankind. He made us. He has expectations for how we satisfy our desires. And when we transgress, word transgress really means to go beyond the boundary of. When we go beyond the boundary of His will and act on these desires in ungodly ways, what do we do? We commit sin. That's how it works. This is the mechanics, right of how, how it works. All right? Let's move on. Not only did God make us in His image and, and create us with these fleshly desires, He created us. To be free moral agents. What does it mean to be a free moral agent? Maybe you've heard that term before, maybe you haven't. What do we mean when we say that we are free moral agents? What it means is that God made us to have a moral conscience. God gave us a capacity to understand His expectations and His commandments. When God tells us to do something, He made us to understand. Okay, We can understand the things that God expects us to do in a moral sense. Not only did God give us this moral conscience, he gave us moral agency. That means he gave us the capacity to act as an agent of good, to obey what he would have us to do. And he also gave us the capacity to act as an agent of evil, to disobey the things, right, that he would have us to do. He gave us moral conscience, ability to understand what he wants. He gave us moral agency, the ability to act either in line with his will or against it. And he gave us the freedom to choose. Freedom of the will to choose to do good or choose to do evil. Sometimes people get confused when we talk about free will. Free will does not necessarily mean that our will can't be influenced by any outside interference. Okay? God can influence us. In fact, I believe He tries to influence us in many different ways to do good. Primarily through His Word. Satan can also exert an influence on us and our will. Okay, God God can do uh, things uh, through His Word to try to influence us and pull us to do good. Satan can also exert an influence on our will to try to pull us away from God and do bad. Okay, freedom of will does not mean that our, our will is shielded from all outside influence. It just means at the end of the day, no matter how strong the influence is from one direction or the other, at the end of the day, it's our choice. At the end of the day, God's never going to make us do something we don't want to do. At the end of the day, Satan can't make us do something that we might not want to do. At the end of the day, despite what influences are working on our soul and working on our will, we choose. We choose to obey God or we choose to disobey God. This is what it means to be a free moral agent. God also, because we're free moral agents, He created us to be governed by moral law. What does it mean to be governed by moral law? It's very simple. It's four C's. Four C's. The first C is command. God told Adam and Eve what they ought to do. He told them what they ought to do in the garden. In Genesis 2.16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. God gave the command. He lays out his expectations as to what they should do and what they should not do. Second thing God does when it comes to moral law is He then counsels or encourages or tries to influence Adam and Eve to do good. Well, how did God try to encourage or counsel Adam and Eve to obey Him? Well, He told them the consequences. He told them what was going to happen if they disobeyed. And my mom and dad did that to me all the time growing up. They said, Son, this is what you need to do, and this is what's going to happen if you don't. And that, you know, that that was usually, hopefully, if I was being a good boy that day, that was. Enough to get me to stay on the straight and narrow. They encouraged me. They told me what I ought to do and they encouraged me to do it by telling me the consequences of misbehavior. And that's what God did with Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.17. He told them, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. This is what's going to happen. If you don't do what I say, this is what's going to happen. Okay. The third C, it's choice, man's choice. God gives His command, He gives counsel, He encourages obedience, and then He lets us choose. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God in Genesis 3, 6. Eve took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. They made a choice. They chose to disobey God. The fourth C when it comes to being governed by moral law is consequence. Consequence. There's always a consequence. There are good consequences to obeying God. There's blessings. There's rewards. And then there's punishment, there's penalty for disobeying God, right? There's always a consequence, good or bad. God punished Adam and Eve because of their disobedience. We'll read more about that as we go through the lesson, Genesis 3, verses 9 through 24. This is moral law. It's it's very, very simple. Hopefully we learn it from our youth, right? God tells us what to do. He encourages us to do it. He gives us a choice, and then He rewards us or punishes us according to what we choose, okay? I also believe the Scriptures give us enough information to conclude that God created man initially to live forever. Created man to live forever. Genesis 2 tells us something interesting about the trees of the garden. There were were many trees there in the garden, and God said you can eat of any of them you want, except except one. But in Genesis 2, the, the names of two specific trees are mentioned. Genesis 2 and 9, the Bible says, Out of the garden made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, and good for food, the tree of life, there's the first tree, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Many trees in the garden, Two, only two that I know of mentioned by name. Tree of life, right, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's the one God told Adam and Eve not to eat of. After Adam and Eve sin, after their disobedience, God says this, it's interesting, in Genesis 3.22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happened? They came to know good and evil. Okay. Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. seems to indicate to me that this tree of life was there for Adam and Eve to eat thereof and, and to live forever if they so chose. But they chose to eat of a different tree. They chose to eat of a tree that God told them not to. And because of their disobedience, part of their punishment was being banished or sent away from the Garden of Eden. They no longer had access to the tree of life. They could not continue to eat of the tree of life and, and live forever anymore because the access to that tree was taken away when they were expelled from the Garden. Okay, So, when we look at Genesis, this is what I believe it teaches about man as God created him to be. Let's move on now and talk about the second part, man as he was tempted by Satan. First thing I want to look at is Satan's big lie that he puts forth before Adam and Eve. And, and I teach Satan's big lie uh, with an illustration that I call the deceit sandwich. I'm going to teach you about the deceit sandwich that... Satan served up for Adam and Eve. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle or cunning or crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of all the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, the middle of the garden... God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. So the serpent comes to Eve and says, Has God told you you can eat of all these trees? And she says, Yes, we can eat of all these trees, except that one. God told us not to eat it, not don't even touch it, he said. He said, If we do, we will die. Very simple, very plain. Verse 4, here, here it comes. The serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, what happens here? What Satan does is he serves up a deceit sandwich for Adam and Eve. A deceit sandwich is this. It's one big lie sandwiched right there between two truths you ever make a sandwich i I really didn't care too much for liver loaf growing up but my dad liked liver loaf don't know if you ever had liver loaf and uh i would never choose to eat a liver loaf sandwich but if my dad was was Smart enough and if he was tricky enough, you know, he could slide a piece of liver loaf between two pieces of sandwich bread and sort of disguise it down in that sandwich to where I wouldn't see it until I, I wouldn't know it until I reached in and took a big bite of it, right? That's how the deceit sandwich worked, okay? Satan gives one big lie and he sandwiches it or tries to disguise it and hide it between two truths, just like a sandwich. Satan's the father of lies. The Bible teaches Satan's the father of lies, but Satan can tell the truth. Satan can quote Scripture. He does quote quote Scripture to Jesus in Matthew 4 during the temptation. So Satan can tell the truth, and there are times when he will tell the truth. If it helps him achieve an evil end, he'll tell the truth. He told two truths to Adam and Eve. First truth was this. He said, if you eat... That fruit, your eyes will be open. That's the first thing he said. God doth know in the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be open. You know that's the truth? You know how we know it's the truth? Because that's the very first thing the Bible says in Genesis 3-7. After they ate the fruit, the Bible says, then their eyes were open. (laughs) That was true. Their eyes were open. It's not their physical eyes. It's not that they were blind and then their physical eyes were open. Their spiritual eyes were were open to something. They became aware of something spiritually that they were not aware of before their decision. But Satan was telling the truth. He said, you eat that fruit, your eyes will be opened. That was true, and it happened. The other truth he told them was this. You eat that fruit, you'll know good and evil. God doth know in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be opened, and you shall be as God's, knowing good and evil. That's, that's true. You know how we know it's true? Because God said that's what happened in Genesis 3.22. Behold, man has become as one of us to know good and evil. It's true that happened. After they ate the fruit of the knowledge, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they had a knowledge of good and evil. That was true. The problem wasn't this, the problem wasn't this. The problem was the big lie that was sandwiched between these two truths. God said uh, Satan said for God doth know in the day ye eat thereof your eyes shall be open And ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. There's the big lie sandwiched in the middle. Eat that fruit and you'll be like God. You'll be like God. Now, stop and think about it. How are we going to become more like God by disobeying the things God tells us to do? Doesn't make any sense, does it? You'll be more like God... By disregarding and disobeying what God told you to do. Seems to me like if you wanted to be more like God, you'd do the things that God had asked you to do. See, there's the lie. There's the deceit right there. Eat that fruit and and you'll be like God. You'll be as God's. Satan's very deceitful. He's very tricky. He uses all kinds of different tricks to get mankind to disobey God. He served up a deceit sandwich to Adam and Eve, and unfortunately they both took a big bite out of it. They fell for it. Another thing we want to look at concerning man as he was tempted by Satan is man was drawn away of his own desires. The Bible speaks of temptation in Genesis one Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But look, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. And enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. I want to focus in on this verse where it says, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. What does that mean? First thing we've got to look at is this word lust. The word lust carries a very negative connotation. When we think about lust, we don't think about things that are good, okay? Lust carries a very negative connotation and for good reason because lust is used in the Scriptures many times to talk about evil desires. Okay? But actually, there are some cases and some contexts in Scripture where the, the Greek word for lust in the New Testament doesn't really mean anything wrong or evil or sinful. The Greek word for lust here in James 1, 14 and 15 is the Greek word ep, uh, epithumia. Epithumia in Strong's Concordance. It's Strong's number 19.39. You can look it up and study it. Thayer says in his lexicon concerning this Greek word epithumia, it can mean desire, craving, longing, desire for what is forbidden, lust. Now that's usually what we associate this Greek word epithumia with, this part, the desire for what is forbidden. But it doesn't always mean that. There are some contexts in which it just simply means desire. It could be a good desire. Okay? Let me give you an example of that. Uh, Strong's in his uh, concordance, says the same thing. It can mean a longing, it can mean concupiscence, desire, or lust, or to lust after. It's found 38 times in the New Testament. 31 times it's translated as lust or lust. Four times it's translated as desire or desired. In Luke 22:15, 15, And He, that's Jesus, said unto them, His disciples, With desire, the Greek word is epithumia, With desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. When Jesus told the apostles that He had desired or had a longing to eat this Passover before His crucifixion, it's the same Greek word, epithumia. In certain contexts, it can just mean a desire, not necessarily a bad desire. Jesus wasn't doing something bad or wrong when He had this desire to eat the Passover with His disciples. And I believe that's probably maybe a better translation of the Greek word epithumia back in James chapter 1. We need to think about that word lust simply as desire, okay? As desire, We are drawn away by our own desires when we face temptation. There's a second component to temptation that we read about there in James 1. Not only is man drawn away of his own desires, he is enticed to sin by Satan. We read that in James 1.14, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust or his own desires and enticed. There's a twofold nature here to temptation. And I think it's important that we understand it. We need to understand what's going on. Okay, We need to understand what's going on spiritually when we fall into temptation. I fall into temptation on a regular basis. And if I don't know what's going on, if I don't know why, if I don't know what forces are at work when I face temptation, how equipped do you think I'm going to be to faithfully overcome that temptation? So I I want to try to help you understand how temptation works. You can think about temptation like I said it has a twofold nature. It has an internal component and an external component. Internally, when we are tempted, we are drawn away of our own desires. The Bible says, "We have desires." We talked about them earlier in the lesson. God gave them to us for our own good, and those desires that we have move us or motivate us to act. Okay? If I if I have a desire, I, I need to act on it. I'm going to have to make a decision, right? And I need to make a decision and act on that desire in such a way that it keeps me within this red circle. It keeps me within the will of God. So I have a desire. I feel pushed maybe to, to come over here. But, and I'm okay because I'm still within the boundaries of God's Word. Or I feel a desire. Well, I'll act on it over here. That's okay because I'm still within the boundaries of, of God's will. I'm still righteous. Okay? So when we face temptation, we are, we are motivated or, or, or we are influenced to act by our internal desires... But from the outside, externally, we are enticed by Satan. So there's sort of a push and a pull going on when we face temptation. We are pushed by our internal desires to act, but we're also being pulled by Satan from the outside. Satan wants to get us to act on our desires in such a way that he can pull us outside the will of God. Okay? So it's a, there's, a, there's a push and a pull involved when we face temptation and we need to understand those things. We need to understand that God gave us desires; They're not necessarily wrong. We've got to act on them in a godly way. And when we do act on them, we've got to be careful that we don't let Satan pull us outside of God's will when we satisfy the, the desires of our flesh. The other thing we want to look at is man's choice and transgression there in the garden. Genesis 3 and 6 When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there's one desire, that it was pleasant to the eyes, second desire, a tree to be desired to make one wise, the third, she made a choice. She took the fruit thereof and did eat. She disobeyed God. She gave also unto her husband with her. She gave it to Adam and he disobeyed as well. He did eat. Let's go on to the third and final part of this lesson. We looked at man as God created him to be. We looked at man as he was under temptation and now let's look at man after he disobeyed God, man after he committed sin. What happened? This is where, this is where a lot of men and a lot of preachers, a lot of theologians go a hundred different directions, okay? And a lot of it just based on speculation and theory and opinion, okay? Many theologians and preachers would tell us many, many fanciful things about the result of Adam and Eve's sin, things that even affect us today, such things that our nature was completely corrupted to the point that because Adam and Eve sinned, we can no longer please God, we can no longer hear God, we can no longer obey God. Things such as the fact that free will was taken away from us. We hear a lot of things spoken of as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. But let's just go back and see what the Bible says. Okay? Genesis 3-7. They committed the sin in verse 6. This is the very next verse. What does the Bible say? The eyes of them both were opened. Their spiritual eyes were open. They became aware of something that they were not aware of, okay, before they committed sin. And they knew that they were naked. That's interesting. If you go back to the last verse of chapter 2, the very last verse of chapter 2 says they were both naked and weren't ashamed, okay? But now they have an awareness that they did not otherwise have. Their eyes are opened. They are aware now. They know that they are naked and they feel guilt and they feel shame because of that. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves clothes. They made themselves aprons or coverings to cover their bodies. Okay, That's interesting, isn't it? I want to just briefly mention a little bit about that nakedness. They knew, they were ashamed, they were afraid, and they hid. The last verse of chapter 2, verse 25 uh, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. But after they committed sin, they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together to make aprons for themselves. So you see, they had a knowledge. That knowledge led to shame. That sh- shame that they felt made them afraid of God. And being afraid of God, they began to hide from God. Okay? We see that when we go on into verse 9 of chapter 3. Apparently it was God's custom to come down into the garden and have a close communion with Adam and Eve to walk with them in the cool of the of the day in the garden. So God comes down on this day, the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, "Where art thou?" God knew where he was. He asked the question nonetheless. You know, God knows everything. Sometimes he still asks the question. <laughs> "Where are you, Adam?" And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God, I assume that God had come down on maybe many occasions before. But this day was different. Where are you, Adam? On this day he was afraid. On this day he was hiding from God. Why was he hiding from God? Because he had a knowledge of good and evil that he didn't have before. And that knowledge made him ashamed of his sin. And that shame caused him to be afraid of God and run and hide from God. You see how the relationship between Adam and Eve was severely disrupted and affected by their sin. Things are different. Things are much, much different in man's relationship with his Creator. As a result of their sin, as we just mentioned, Adam and Eve came to know good and evil. What did they eat of? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was the consequence? They came to know good and evil. Genesis 3.22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. What I, what I believe this speaks to is an awakening or a quickening of their conscience. Okay? Each and every one of us are born with a conscience. It's a law written in our heart, Roman 2 teaches. We, are all, we all come into this life, even these little children, these, these young people up here on the front row, they don't know a lot yet. They're growing, they're learning. But they come into this world with a, with a knowledge of certain things that are right and wrong. And it's, it's, it's separate and apart from the things that mom and dad teach them to be right and wrong. They have a law written on their heart just like we do that there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. You don't have to learn it from mom and dad. You don't have to learn it at school. Okay, You just know. You're born just knowing. That's your conscience. Romans 2.14, For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature, it's natural, it comes by nature, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which shew or demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. That's what your conscience will do. It'll accuse you. It'll make you feel bad when you do wrong. Or it'll excuse you and make you feel good when you do right. God made us to be that way. And Adam and Eve had an awakening or a quickening of their conscience when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what the conscience is all about. An inherent innate knowledge of what is good and what is evil. God goes on to also say that sorrow of woman would be multiplied in childbirth. That was a consequence of their sin. In Genesis three sixteen, to the woman He said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. She'd bring forth children into this world uh, with great sorrow and great pain and great turmoil. Remember, God told them to be fruitful and multiply before their sin. Okay, God told them to be fruitful and multiply before their sin. But after their sin, He tells them it's going to be a painful and troubling experience. He also cursed the ground for man's sake concerning his sin. Genesis 3.17 Unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened or listened to the voice of thy wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Because of all this, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Man was going to have to go out and till the ground and work hard to get it to produce his food. Okay? Apparently God provided all the food there in the trees of the garden for Adam and Eve to have it at their pleasure and disposal, but it was going to be different. They were going to be outside the garden if they wanted food. They were going to have to go out and till the ground and grow it. And then lastly, Adam and Eve were banished from the garden and from the tree of life. Genesis 3.22, the Lord God said, Behold, man has become as one of us to know good and evil, Now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way or protect the way of the tree of life. As another consequence of man committing sin, when Adam and Eve sinned, they began slowly dying a physical death. This is something that God promised would happen if they disobeyed. Genesis two seventeen, For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. God told them, if you eat that fruit, thou shalt surely die. In the Hebrew, what I understand thou shalt surely die to mean is it literally means dying thou shalt die. Dying thou shalt die. And I think implied within this, dying thou shalt die, is a, is a physical death implied and also a spiritual death. Death is a separation. That's what death is. You can think about death as a a separation. Physical death is a separation of our spirit from our body. James 2 teaches, just like faith without works is dead, it's likened unto a body without a spirit being dead. Physical death is a separation of man's spirit and his body. Spiritual death, on the other hand, is separation from God because He's the giver of all spiritual life. And when we commit sin... We die a spiritual death because we're separated from God because of our sin. Sin drives a wedge of separation between unholy people like us and a perfectly holy God. So Adam and Eve began slowly dying a physical death that day. Adam would go on to live 900 and some years. But he died a spiritual death. He was separated from God because of his sin and he slowly began to also die a physical death. We also see Adam and Eve being separated from God in the fact that they hid from God in the garden and the fact that they were banished from the garden altogether. Separation from God caused by sin. That's all that is. In Genesis 3.19, God told them, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. It's physical death, and we're all aware of. Last part of this lesson, what I want to do briefly, is I want us to go back and think about everything we've studied thus far, and I want us to notice some things that did not change for mankind as a result of Adam's sin, okay? These are things that did not change. A lot of people will tell you that that many things changed. These are things that actually did not change because of man's sin. Man still bears the spiritual image of God. That was not lost because of Adam's sin. You and I still bear the spiritual image of God. In Genesis 9-6, this is after Noah in the the flood. Genesis 9-6, after Noah in the flood. God told Noah, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Long after the flood, many, many hundreds of years after Adam and Eve, after they got out of the, the ark after the flood, God said, you don't murder one another. Why? He said, because man is made in the image of God. That wasn't lost because of Adam and Eve's sin. Man is still made in the image of God. Let me give you a New Testament verse. James chapter 3, verses 8 to 9. James 3, verses 8 to 9, it teaches us about the tongue. It says, the tongue can no man tame. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Listen, therewith bless we God, even the Father. Therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. We shouldn't curse one another and talk bad about one another. Because he says, man is still made in the similitude of God. We're made in the image of God. That was not lost, that did not change because of Adam and Eve's sin. Man is still a free moral agent. We are still free moral agents. That wasn't lost because of Adam and Eve's sin. God appeared to Cain. Cain was the son of Adam and Eve. God appeared to Cain after his worship, his offering was rejected by God, and Cain was very wroth or angry about it. The Lord God said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? Why are you angry? Why is thou countenance fallen? Look, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. Cain was mad that God had rejected his offering. And he was all bent out of shape about it. And God comes down and communicates with him and says, listen, if you do what's right, you'll be accepted with me. If you don't, you got a sin problem. Okay? Cain still had a choice, to do what was right and be accepted of God, or to not do what's right, do what was right and have a sin problem. And God is reiterating that. Cain, you've got a choice. Do what's right or don't. Free will wasn't taken away from man because of Adam and Eve's sin. In Deuteronomy 11:26, 26, Moses told the children of Israel, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse, a blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if ye will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. Moses told them as he was retelling the law in Deuteronomy, If you obey God, you'll be blessed. If you choose to disobey God, you're going to have all kinds of problems. See, we still have free will. We still have a choice. Something else that didn't change as a result of Adam's sin, man is still governed by moral law today. Still governed by moral law, just like Adam and Eve were. Remember moral laws, the four C's? God gives us a command. He tells us what we ought to do. And speaking through Paul in Athens on Mars Hill, he says that all men ought to repent. All men ought to repent. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent of sin and turn to Him. God tells us what we ought to do. And then God encourages us. He counsels us to obey Him. Many times in the Scriptures we see God begging and pleading with people to obey and live. Through Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18.32, God said, I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies, saith the Lord God. He says, Wherefore turn ye yourselves and live ye? Do what I say. I have no pleasure in people perishing and and punishing people. Turn and obey and live. God tells us what to do. He counsels us to do it. And then God still gives us a choice today to obey or disobey Him. This is illustrated, I think, well by what Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Matthew 23, 37, He said, How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. This is Jesus saying, speaking on behalf of the Father to Israel, saying there are many, many times I I would have taken you under my wing and sheltered you and protected you and provided for you like a hen does her chicks. But man still has a choice to make whether or not he will accept God in that way or not. And God rewards man according to his moral choices. He did it with Adam and Eve and he does it today. In Matthew 23, 38, because... They said, Jesus said, ye would not. God wanted to do this, right? God wanted to do this, but you wouldn't have it. You, you wanted this. They made a different choice than what God wanted, and then God punished them because of their, their choice. In verse 38, Jesus said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. It was a consequence of their rebellion against God and His will. Something else that didn't change as a result of man's sin, we still face the same type of temptations today that Adam and Eve did. James 1.14, the verse we read early, said, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Every man. We all face temptation. I face, face temptation and you face temptation. Temptation wasn't taken away as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. Paul told the Corinthians that the temptations that they were facing were common to men. There is no temptation taken you but such is common to man. And then he pr- promised... Uh, that God would be there to provide a way to escape every temptation. Something else that didn't change, man still has the ability to hear and obey God. This is probably one of the biggest misunderstandings about Adam and Eve's sin. Many people believe and teach today that because of Adam and Eve's sin, all of their offspring, all future generations, lost the ability to hear, obey, and be pleasing to God. That they were born in sin, if you will without any capacity or any ability to hear God, to understand God, to obey God, or to be pleasing to God in any way. But that's simply not true. Did did we read that anywhere in Genesis chapter 3? I think we read through almost the whole chapter. Did we read that anywhere in Genesis 3? That Adam and Eve, because of your sin, all of your future offspring won't be able to hear my voice and understand me and seek me and find me and obey me? We, We didn't read that. It's an idea, it's a doctrine, it's a tradition of men. In Genesis 4-9, again, this is God having a conversation with the son, Cain, of Adam and Eve. The Lord God said unto Cain, Where is thy brother Abel? God spoke to Cain. Where's your brother? Did Cain hear the voice of God? Well, sure he heard the voice of God, because he answered. And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? If mankind completely lost the ability or the capacity to, to hear from God, to understand God, to seek God, to find God, to obey God, you know, God would still be yelling at Cain and, and Cain wouldn't be able to hear a thing, right? Man did not lose the capacity to hear, hear God or to obey God. You know, Genesis 4.26 says, To Seth, to him also was born a son, he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Men began to seek after God. In the days of Enos, Enos was from the third generation. Adam had Seth, Seth had Enos, and men began to call on the name of the Lord. They began to seek after God. That was not lost in the fall, the fall of man. The ability to seek after God and to find Him and to hear His will and understand it and to obey Him. In Genesis 6.22, we read about a man named Noah. God told Noah to build a boat. told him exactly how to build it. God heard the commandment, or Noah heard the commandment of God, he understood it, and guess what? He had the ability to obey it. We have the ability to obey God. It was not taken from us. Because the Bible says in Genesis 6.22, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. This is what really happened in the Garden of Eden. I realize I've thrown a lot at you, and I've thrown it at you rather quickly. But I hope these things help you to have a better understanding really of who we are, right? How God made us to be. How He wants us to be. We can learn so much about our, inter- our interactions with God through the way He interacted with Adam and Eve. We learn about our nature. We learn about our makeup. We learn about how we're tempted. We learn about these desires we have and how we have to wrestle with them. How we have to act on them in a way that pleases God. And How Satan is always there trying to pull us outside the will of God. We need to understand these things. It's by understanding these things And always relying and trusting on God that we can stay as close as we possibly can to Him and stay within the boundaries of His will. So I think we can learn a lot, and I hope you've learned a lot today from taking a a deep look and a study at what really happened in the Garden of Eden. Thank you all for your attention. We're going to close with an invitation song. If you're here this morning and you're not within the, the boundaries of God's will, maybe there's some aspect or part of your life where you have slowly but surely moved away from the will of God, and you've stepped outside the will of God, and you're not living for Him, you're not serving Him faithfully or diligently. We we want to help you. There's some some area of your life where you're weak, you're struggling, you you need help, you need prayer, you need study. Whatever spiritual need you have today, we we want to help one another. That's why we're here. If you have a spiritual need or you desire to obey the gospel, please make that known by coming forward and having a seat on the front. We'll help you while we stand and while we sing. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.